Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. In today's case, we are going to highlight one woman's desperate attempt to leave an abusive relationship and the failures of the criminal justice system to protect her, despite her best efforts. As 31-year-old Marie Varsis attempted to escape her abusive relationship plagued with coercive control and intimate partner violence, She was surprised to learn how difficult it was to find resources to back her up. And as consumers of true crime content, by now we all know that the most dangerous step anyone can take in an abusive relationship is when the abused tries to leave. Marie Varsas did everything right when she tried to leave her abusive relationship. She had a safe place to go and had confided in family, friends, and neighbors for her safety. She began documenting her husband's behavior with detailed notes and even video recordings. She made a plan to safely escape and believed that law enforcement and the court system would be behind her every step of the way. She couldn't have been more wrong. In today's case, we are going to explore why leaving such a relationship is the most dangerous step one can take and why the abuser will often unleash their fury, not only on their intended targets, but also on innocent family members and friends who dared to offer a helping hand. As we navigate through the depths of this disturbing subject matter, it is crucial to understand the complex dynamics that fuel the spiral of violence within abusive relationships. Coercive control is a sinister form of domination, which slowly and insidiously takes hold of the victim, stripping away their autonomy, self-esteem, and sense of worth. This psychological manipulation creates an atmosphere of fear and subjugation, leaving the victim feeling trapped and isolated. When Marie summoned the courage to leave, it was because Sean had finally crossed an invisible line into the darkest corners of human nature. Tensions between the couple rose, and the true depravity of his intentions were unveiled. And we're going to discuss that day a little bit later in this episode. It was a day when Sean had choked Marie to the point of unconsciousness. He had no idea she was secretly recording him. And we've talked about this before. Research has shown that victims are 10 times more likely to be killed by their abuser if there is a history of strangulation or choking. It is an extremely dangerous and significant red flag for many reasons, and the most important of which is the risk of lethality. Choking and strangulation is a highly lethal act and a strong predictor of future violence. 
Studies have shown that the victims who experience strangulation by an intimate partner are at a significantly higher risk of being killed by that same individual later on. The act of choking demonstrates a disturbing escalation of violence where the abuser is willing to exert direct physical force to control and harm their partner. It's also about power and control. Strangulation is the ultimate act of control. By cutting off their partner's air supply and restricting blood flow to the brain, the abuser asserts their dominance and instills immense fear. It sends a clear message that they possess the power to decide life or death. This level of brutality serves to maintain control and reinforce the victim's ongoing submission. There is also the psychological impact. The abuser wants to traumatize and punish their victim, leaving them with lasting emotional scars. Scars that run deep enough to prevent their victim from trying to leave again. It's also an escalation of violence. It indicates that the previous forms of abuse may no longer be sufficient for the abuser to maintain control. So as the cycle of violence intensifies, the risk to the victim's safety exponentially increases. So leaving becomes a direct challenge to the abuser's control, shattering their illusion of power and exposing their own vulnerability and weaknesses. And it's at this fragile juncture that danger lurks. The abuser, desperate to maintain their dominance, may resort to extreme measures to reclaim their perceived ownership. The risk of a murder-suicide scenario looms heavily in the shadows where desperation and a loss of control can trigger catastrophic violence. Now, in 2006, when 23-year-old Sean Varis met 18-year-old Marie, she was a senior in high school, and they both worked together at a movie theater and began dating almost immediately. Sean was originally from Alaska, but had eventually moved to Nashville, Tennessee. He was immediately head over heels and captivated by Marie, monopolizing all of her time. After graduating high school, Marie attended Belmont University as a pharmacy major, and she went on to get her doctorate in pharmacy and then a master's in business administration. The entire time she worked at Walgreens, working her way up from a pharmacy assistant to a pharmacist, and finally the manager of the pharmacy department. Marie was driven, compassionate, and had dedicated her life to the pursuit of knowledge and service to her community. With her sights set on becoming a pharmacist, she embarked on a journey of education and selflessness that would profoundly impact those around her. Marie was constantly setting goals and attaining them. And throughout her studies, Marie displayed a remarkable dedication to her chosen field. She immersed herself in the intricacies of pharmaceutical science, diligently working towards her goal of becoming a pharmacy manager. Her commitment to excellence and the pursuit of knowledge set her apart, earning her the respect and admiration of her peers and mentors. But Marie's impact extended far beyond the walls of academic institutions. She selflessly volunteered her time and skill in various other capacities, seeking opportunities to make a positive impact wherever she could. Whether it was participating in local health fairs, offering guidance on medication management, or providing counseling to those in need, Marie's genuine care and dedication shone through in all of her actions. 
Now, Marie's marriage was a different story. She married Sean in May of 2013. Being married to Sean was something that Marie was hoping to safely end, and soon. Sean was a controlling and manipulative husband who held a toxic grip over his wife for eight long years, subjecting her to a relentless cycle of emotional abuse. He cunningly exploited her vulnerabilities, eroded her self-esteem, and exerted his dominance over every aspect of her life. Even from the early days of their relationship, Sean used manipulation as his weapon of choice. He used gaslighting techniques, distorting her perception of reality and making her doubt her own instinct and judgment. And with precision, he isolated her from her friends and family, ensuring that he held complete control over her social interactions and support network. Sean's manipulation extended to every corner of their lives. He dictated what she wore, who she spoke to, and where she went, using these forms of control to reinforce his dominance and undermine her sense of autonomy. And his belittling remarks and derogatory comments were occurring daily, chipping away at her self-worth and creating a dependency on his approval. And you could imagine eight long years of enduring this psychological torment would mentally weaken someone. Well, Marie summoned the strength to break free from the crutches of his manipulation, which would be extremely hard to do. Filing for divorce on the grounds of inappropriate marital conduct, she made a courageous decision to reclaim her life and escape the suffocating atmosphere he had imposed on her. However, Sean's response to her newfound independence was far from expected. Rather than accepting the dissolution of their relationship, he unleashed a torrent of threats and violence. His anger and desperation drove him to issue chilling ultimatums, threatening not only to end his own life, but also to harm her and anyone who supported her decisions to leave him. Marie and Sean officially separated in January of 2021, but Sean was sure that through his continued manipulation and pretend vows of personal change, that he could manipulate her back into his possession. And when that didn't work, he used the only control that he still had, the two dogs the couple shared. But Marie was smart. She knew that she couldn't trust Sean and began documenting his threats of violence and controlling behavior. She began taking extensive notes on her computer and on some occasions when it was possible, she would record Sean's escalating behavior on her phone. On March of 2021, Marie officially filed for divorce. And a few days after filing for divorce, Marie arranged with Sean to come by their former home and pick up her two dogs. Since their separation, they were sharing custody of the dogs. It was the last thread of control that Sean could exert over Marie. It also forced her to see him in person for the exchange. So basically, he was using the dogs as bait to lure her back in his possession. The exchange between Sean and Marie was supposed to take place in the early evening. After Marie arrived at her old home, some of her friends and coworkers began receiving strange text messages from her. In some of the messages, Marie began apologizing for having an affair and treating her husband like he was the bad guy. The messages went on to exonerate Sean's character, while Marie took complete responsibility. She also told them that she didn't want to be friends with them anymore because she felt like they encouraged her to leave her marriage. 
She also needed time and space away from their unwelcomed influence while she worked on her relationship with Sean. And the recipients knew right away that it didn't sound like Marie. One of the receivers of these messages was so alarmed that they called Marie's mother to find out what was going on. She tried calling Marie herself and got no answer. Marie's mother, Debbie Sisko, called her son, Alex Yawn, and asked him to contact Marie. After repeated phone calls, Marie eventually answered, and she told Alex that everything was fine, she was perfectly okay, and that she was still there with Sean. When he asked her about the strange text messages, she seemed unaware of their existence, but then suddenly remembered, and she said everything was fine. She promised him that she would be leaving shortly and would call him once she was in the car. After about 20 minutes, Alex still hadn't heard from Marie and called her back. Once again, Marie told him that she was fine and she was just about to leave and would call him shortly. And once Marie finally was able to leave, she shared with Alex and her mother what had really happened that evening. According to the article by NPR, Marie's brother Alex explained that once Marie arrived at Sean's house, he immediately began yelling at Marie and refusing her to take her dogs. When she attempted to leave, he grabbed her and dragged her inside the home against her will. He told her that he wanted to work things out and get back together. And Marie made it very clear that she would never go back to him. Things escalated quickly as she pushed Sean into a blind rage. He immediately pushed Marie to the ground, jumped on top of her and began choking her until he thought she was dead, but she had only passed out. When she woke up, she was disoriented and didn't immediately remember what actually happened. However, her phone had recorded a small portion of the frightening attack. And in the recording, Marie can be heard saying, stop, don't put your hands on me. And when she began to reorient herself, she realized that Sean had both her phone and her keys. He dragged her into the bedroom and threatened to kill her and himself if she didn't reconsider. He pulled out a gun, placed it against her head, and once again threatened to kill her. It was clear that this time, Sean meant business. Now later, Alex learned that Sean's mother had initially been inside the home when the attack began. She didn't want to be involved, so instead of helping Marie, she took the two dogs out of the house and left the home. Sean's mother never reported the attack and didn't try to intervene. Who knows what may have been happening with their relationship. Maybe Sean was manipulating her too. Sean only agreed to let Marie leave if she promised not to report the attack and promised to work on their relationship. To ensure she kept her promise, he told her if she reported him, he would kill her after he killed all of her friends and family, then he would kill himself. He wanted to ensure that she knew he would have nothing to lose by carrying out these threats. To show that he was serious, he showed Marie his kill list and then the practice messages he had sent to all of her friends and coworkers. Of course, Marie agreed to all of his conditions and promised to never report him, but these were promises she had no intention of keeping. Debbie Sisko called the police to report the incident, but the police told her that they couldn't send a car right away because they were too busy dealing with life and death emergencies. An attack involving a gun and strangulation to the point of passing out are the biggest warning signs that a domestic violence case could turn lethal. The police should have immediately realized that this was an attempted murder and responded immediately. The dispatcher told Marie, quote, 
They're working on getting out there to you. There is just nobody in the precinct right now. So what's going to happen is a patrol car is going to free up from whatever they're doing to come to you. But they have to take those life-threatening emergencies first, end quote. But this was, in fact, a life-threatening emergency for Marie. Both Marie and her mom were in disbelief that their case didn't qualify as life-threatening. Even Alex, who was living in San Francisco at the time, called the police department and insisted someone go to his mother's home and take a report and arrest Sean. He told them, quote, "'My sister was choked out when she passed out and her husband threatened to shoot her. This is important. This is an emergency. My patience is gone. I'm trying to be as appreciative and waiting as long as possible, but my sister's husband threatened to shoot her and then shoot himself." End quote. His call was also disregarded. Hours later, Marie could no longer wait. As the bruises around her neck were darkening, she showed up at the police station to personally file a report. When she arrived, they told her that if she went to the Lebanon police station, that it would be quicker. But when she arrived, the doors were locked and the parking lot was empty. Once again, they called the police and were told to wait. Eventually, they were able to file their police report. The next day, she was also able to take the police report and get a temporary order of protection from the court. In her restraining order application, she specifically requested that Sean's guns be taken away from him. She felt that he was going to try to follow through with his plans to kill her and then her friends and family. Sean was charged with assault and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Instead of being arrested, Sean was notified by the sheriff's department to come in and pick up the order. At that time, he was also supposed to have been arrested. However, due to a clerical error, that didn't happen. When he walked into the sheriff's department, they ran his name and didn't see the warrant, which was issued the night before. He was free to leave. It was only after Marie notified law enforcement herself of Sean's location that he was finally taken into police custody. And later, the district attorney's office would state that this has been a regular issue where the sheriff's department and the Metro Police Department don't communicate with each other or know what the other office was doing. It has resulted in numerous felons falling through the cracks of the justice system. After this case, the sheriff's department implemented an extra process to notify the police department in case of domestic violence like Marie's case. It was too little, too late to help Marie. Now, just when you think, well, mistakes happen, the sheriff's department made another mistake. They accidentally released Sean early, but they weren't done making mistakes. Marie had signed up to be notified in the event of Sean's release. She knew she wouldn't be safe and she wanted to be on her guard. But Marie was never notified by the state's victim notification system. A sheriff deputy had failed to follow through in notifying her. As a result, he was later disciplined for this oversight. Internal records show that Marie tried to bring this error to their attention and she called them and told them, quote, I never got a notification or a missed call or anything that happened, so I just want to make sure my contact information was correct, end quote. And that was made in a recorded after-hours message to a non-emergency line a few days after the attack. Because Sean was the subject of a domestic violence restraining order, Sean was ordered to give up all of his guns. Tennessee has no method to enforce this requirement. 
Part of the problem is that someone who has been ordered to turn in their guns can give them to a licensed firearms dealer, law enforcement, or they can have them held by a third party such as a friend or relative. In Sean's case, he told law enforcement that his father would hold onto the guns for him. Shockingly, this is on the honor system. The entire purpose of the provision to turn over firearms in cases of domestic violence restraining orders is to reduce the risk of further or escalated violence. The prohibition of firearm possession for individuals with domestic violence restraining orders stems from federal and state laws. The federal law, known as the Lautenberg Amendment, prohibits anyone convicted of domestic violence from possessing firearms. Many states, like Tennessee, have other specific laws that restrict firearm possession for individuals subject to a domestic violence restraining order, clearly allowing Sean to pretend to hand over the firearms to his father was another failure by law enforcement. In Nashville, nearly half of subjects in domestic violence homicides were supposed to be prohibited from having access to guns. In fact, Tennessee has one of the highest rates of women killed by men due to domestic violence. It ranks 10th in the nation. Certainly not something you would want your state to be known for. On the morning of April 12th, 2021, Sean took to Facebook. He made a post that said, in part, quote, Marie Varsis killed me. She lied to me and destroyed me. This is my dying declaration. She broke into our formerly shared home and tried to grab her gun after making me feel incredibly threatened. It escalated things to a terrible confrontation. She had an emotional affair, at the very least, with one of her employees, who was almost a decade younger than her, and she became completely infatuated with her. Lying to me about where she was spending the night and who she was with, she gaslit me for months about this affair and her communication with her mistress. She stole opiates from her work for me, but not at my request. I heavily chastised her for it and told her to never do it again. I didn't snap and go after random people. I went after the person who tried to kill me and when she failed at driving me to suicide and tried to destroy my life in every other meaningful way. It is my sincere opinion that this was justice, but I paid for my justice with my life. I'm so sorry I failed so many of you. My mom has my suicide note, if you care to read it. May you all find the peace and happiness I was denied, end quote. It's clear that he wanted to assassinate her character before assassinating her in real life. Then he went on to say that he was the real victim of Marie and her lies and emotional manipulation. He disparaged her family at being untrustworthy and complicit in Marie's lies. That's ironic because it was his family who pretended to have his guns and left his home after he began assaulting Marie. He believed that Marie gave him false hope and betrayed her vows when she filed for divorce. In his mind, Marie wasn't a separate person with autonomy and the right to leave him. She was nothing more than a possession, and her justifiable sentence for choosing to leave him was going to be death. He alleged he could no longer live with Marie's abuse, nor could he stand by and watch his abuser go free to live a happy life without him. She had to be punished for driving him to suicide. After his Facebook post, he took his gun, the one that he wasn't supposed to have, battery acid and zip ties to Marie's mom's house. He also had a taser, gasoline, and duct tape. 
Overwhelmed by a potent mix of anger, resentment, and a sense of losing control, Sean committed a series of unimaginable acts of violence. That morning when Alex yawned, saw Sean's Facebook post, he immediately panicked. He began calling both his mom and sister to make sure that Marie was safe. When he couldn't get a hold of them, he began calling his mom's boyfriend. He told the boyfriend about Sean's suicide note and asked if things were okay. And he learned that they were not okay. That morning, Sean rented a car and drove over to Marie's mom's house with his torture and kill kit. And he parked across the street and waited for 45 minutes before summoning the courage to complete his plan. It was shortly before 8 a.m. when Marie exited the front door to go to work. And when she saw Sean coming towards her, she ran back inside the house and locked the door. But Sean chased after her with his deadly intent. Alex believes that Sean's original plan was to kidnap Marie, but his plan was ruined when Marie spotted him first. Once Marie locked the door, her mother, Debbie, called 911 and they retrieved their own guns for protection. While they were waiting for Sean to break through the front door, he broke through the back door, surprising them. This caused Debbie and Marie to run out the front door to escape him. They made it a few houses over before Sean caught up with them, shooting Debbie in the back first and killing her instantly. Realizing her mother had been shot, Marie took up a defense position and began shooting back at Sean while yelling for help from the neighbors. Marie shot Sean three times, but none of the shots were fatal. With his plan foiled and wounded himself, he had to settle for shooting Marie. His one shot to Marie was fatal. After killing both women, he went back to his rental car and despite being shot three times, was able to drive himself towards his house. He pulled over and shot himself fatally in the head, ending his own miserable life. Why do the perpetrators extend their wrath beyond their intended target? Why do they lash out at innocent family members and friends who lend support to their partner's escape? The answer lies in the twisted logic of power and possession. In their warped worldview, the abuser perceives any form of assistance as betrayal, a direct affront to their authority. By striking out at those who dare to help their partner, they seek their control even in their ultimate act of desperation. It is crucial for victims, their loved ones, and professionals in the field of domestic violence to understand the significance of strangulation as a red flag for increased danger. If you or someone you know is experiencing or has experienced this form of violence, it is essential to seek immediate help from law enforcement, support services, or helplines specializing in domestic violence. Your safety is number one, and there are resources available to provide support and guidance. In 2022, Alex took everything he learned from his sister's case and brought it to the state capitol in Tennessee. He said, quote, I wanted to make sure that no one, no family had to endure what we had to go through. With the help of a local legislator, Alex was able to get four bills written, but because of the concerns about expenses or coordination required to implement the new laws, only one of them became a law. It requires more communication between sheriff's offices and the police. Alex said, while it's a small move in the right direction, it's still not enough to save lives. Alex stated, quote, for them, they view it as one thing that went wrong with their agency, 
but coupled together, there are like eight things that went wrong for this person that is dealing with the government to try to get the help that they needed. Alex plans to return to the state capitol in Tennessee from his home in California as many times as it takes to close the gaps that his sister and his mother fell through. His fight for justice is ongoing. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached 24-7 at 800-799-7233 or by text at 88788. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. 